You are listening to Love, Maine Radio, hosted by Dr. Lisa Belisle and recorded at the studios of Maine Magazine in Portland. Dr. Lisa Belisle is a writer and physician who practices family medicine and acupuncture in Thompson. Show summaries are available at lovemainradio.com. Here are a few highlights from this week's program. I am not a person who dislikes conflict. I actually really like conflict. Not for the sake of doing battle, but for instance, in a company environment, I like different points of view coming out because that's how you arrive at the best decision. Uh, I think that that's the only way to do that. Obviously, engaging with uh, political um, with the political entities that make those decisions, the school board first, the city council, um, and ultimately with voters, is you know an important part of the. Um, of the mix. This is Dr. Lisa Belisle, and you are listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 304, Entrepreneurship and Education, airing for the first time on Sunday, July 16, 2017. Sometimes it takes a willingness to engage in conflict and work our way through difficult situations in order to succeed. Today we discuss this idea with executive and entrepreneur Gene Hoffman, who was recently featured in Maine Magazine's 50 Mainers issue. We also speak with Portland Public Schools Superintendent Javier Botana. Thank you for joining us. Portland Art Gallery is proud to sponsor Love, Maine Radio. Portland Art Gallery is the city's largest and is located in the heart of the Old Port at 154 Middle Street. The gallery focuses on exhibiting the work of contemporary Maine artists and hosts a series of monthly solo shows in its newly expanded space, including Ingen Jorgensen, Brenda Sirioni, Daniel Corey, Jill Hoy, and Dave Allen. For complete show details, please visit our website at artcollectormaine.com. My next guest is Jean Hoffman, who is an executive and entrepreneur who has built successful companies in the global pharmaceutical, veterinary, and healthcare information technology industries. In 2006, she founded Putney, a Portland-based pet medicine company that was sold last year for $200 million. Well, I'm impressed. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me. You also happen to be one of our 50 Mainers this year for Maine Magazine, so congratulations on that honor. Thank you. It is an honor. I'm looking forward to seeing who the other 49 are this year. Tell me about your company. Tell me why you decided that you wanted to go into pet medicine. I had been in the pharmaceutical industry actually my entire career. And so Putney was the second company I built here in Portland, Maine. And uh, the first one was also it was healthcare information technology, and the information was related to pharmaceuticals. And if with selling that company, it was uh, the HIT sector was consolidating, and the information we provided helped companies find niche products that were more profitable, had less competition on a global basis. So I wanted to take that expertise and develop a company that did that type of product. And I looked at a number of places where I thought there would be product opportunities and found a great opportunity in pet medicine where there was no successful generic drug company. But pet owners, as many, uh, many of you know, spend a lot of money on their pet family members. And very few people have insurance. 
And so there was a real opportunity to provide lower cost generic drugs for pets, just like people are using for their prescription drugs for their human family members that are saving the U.S. healthcare system so many billions of dollars. What was your, was there an aha moment? Did you, were you a pet owner yourself? Where, where did you come to this realization that this was where you wanted to focus your energies? Well, it was driven by two things. And one uh, was a cat I had uh, some years back, one of our early adopted cats who in his old age developed uh, hyperthyroidism, which is common in cats. And he required medication initially once a day and then twice a day. And there was, at the time he first went on this medication, no generic, and it was a human drug. So it was initially $30 a month for my cat and then $60 a month for my cat, which is a lot of money for many people. And I knew that the product could be generic, and eventually it was generic as a human drug. So that was part of it. And then the other part of it was, as I mentioned, that I saw this opportunity to build a company that provided cost savings and really uh, provided a great service to pet owners so they could afford to care for their pets. So it was both an attractive financial opportunity and driven by this love of my cat and the understanding that lots of people love their pets. How did you decide that you wanted to go into business? That's an interesting question because I come from a family, I'm from Washington, D.C., and I come from a family of writers, editors, my brother writes books, and uh, so it was not the expected course. Um, But I majored in East Asian history at Bowdoin, and I was really interested in China and I had learned Chinese. And so I went back to DC and my first job that I got was at a quasi-governmental organization that was assisting US companies wanting to open up business with China. And being the lowest person on that totem pole when I was hired as a kid right out of Bowdoin, I was assigned to lead a Chinese delegation around the US that no one wanted. And they were a bunch of chemical engineers running pharmaceutical factories in China. And that's really how I got in. I took these people all around the US and they reciprocated by inviting me to visit their facilities in China. And Chinese pharmaceutical manufacturing of what's called the API, the active pharmaceutical ingredient that makes the drug work, These factories were located in the Chinese hinterlands for security reasons, and Westerners were not allowed. But because these high-level Communist Party members had invited me, and I was not a chemical engineer and not a chemist and, you know, 22 years old and not really a threat to anybody, I was allowed to go visit. And it was an incredible opportunity to learn and build connections. And that was the start of my uh, career-long involvement in the pharmaceutical industry. You went to Bowdoin at a time when there were not that many women because they had only recently integrated. This is true. 
Joni Benoit and I were in the class of 1979, and that's a really long time ago. <laughs> and they also, I'm not sure that all the men that went to Bowdoin at that time necessarily wanted women to be introduced to their college. Is that I'd fair say, to say? They all wanted women to be introduced, whether they wanted them as equal members in their fraternities uh, and to really have women as equals in 50% of the campus, that would be the question. So tell me what that was like as a learning environment for you as a starting out as a 17-year-old. Well, I think that it actually helped me to become tougher in ways that were helpful because Bowdoin was not my tribe. And I didn't fully become conscious of that till after I'd left. And, you know, years later, like many people, I sort of figured out more about who my tribe was and, and built connections uh, on a global basis and looked back uh, perhaps more insightfully than I had looked at things when I was 18 and starting Bowdoin. But I think it made me tougher. It was a place where I was um, pretty different from most of the people, certainly the prevailing group at Bowdoin, and it wasn't, uh, it was in many ways hostile, you know, to be, I think the male-female ratio when I started was four to one. I hadn't realized that when I applied. Um, but I think it overall was helpful in making me tougher because as a woman in business and the businesses I've been in, the roles I've had, have always been pioneering groundbreaking, entrepreneurial, building things, fighting battles. So, you know, being in a hostile environment with a tribe that wasn't mine was actually really helpful. Some people don't like conflict. Some people don't like the having to be in a hostile environment. Is this something that you, well, I don't want to say liked, but is it something that you felt comfortable enough that you could actually grow within it rather than recede within yourself? That's a really perceptive observation, and I am not a person who dislikes conflict. I actually really like conflict. Not for the sake of doing battle, but for instance, in a company environment, I like different points of view coming out because that's how you arrive at the best decision in terms of targeting markets, if you don't have conflict, you're not going against or creating a you're not going against a competitor or creating a big opportunity. You know, to just accept things as they are, grow incrementally, go along with the crowd has zero interest for me. So in some ways, even it, though they weren't your tribe, it was kind of a perfect place for you to be at Bowdoin at the time. I hesitate to agree with you on perfect, but I learned a lot. And I guess I would agree that there are so many opportunities in any situation to make the best of it and to learn and to triumph individually, not over other people, but in terms of your own development. And I've always welcome those opportunities 
and uh, you know cherish that kind of characteristic in other people. And I think that's part of how we succeeded at Putney is we built a whole team of people who loved nothing more than overcoming obstacles. You know, intellectual challenges, things that hadn't been done before, tough submissions and regulations at the FDA. You know, how do you figure that out and do it to a really excellent level where you can succeed? You know, the people who love doing that are the people who built the company. And, you know, that's very much how I am. You know, bring it on. Let, let's take that hill. As I'm listening to you talk about these situations you are in, you describe fortuitously becoming involved in um, Chinese industry. And China has now, has subsequently become really well known as, as a worldwide leader in industry. But back when you were doing this, I, I don't think that people recognize that that was the case. You're right. And then also health information technology, which I'm thinking that when you were doing this, we were still doing paper charts up until about 20 years ago. So health information technology was also still new and not recognized, I think, quite yet as being what it was going to become. And then pet pharmaceuticals, which now we all say, oh, of course. But you're talking about just consistently bumping up against things that didn't exist yet as being important and still being willing to, I guess, feel your way through. I sought those out. Yes. At Newport, which was the first company I built in healthcare information technology, I used to describe our chief competitor as two of them, paper files and in your head. So we really were doing something new and bringing a computerized database with proprietary algorithms and data to enable people to search for information that previously they might have found or kept on paper files or had in their head. And so yes, it was revolutionary and that made it fun. There's also a need to be in addition to being willing to deal with conflict, there's also a need to be collaborative and persuasive. Because if you're dealing with health information technology, you're also dealing with people who are kind of happy with the status quo. I mean, I've worked within the health field now for two decades, and I know that there are still people who wish that we were back on paper charts. And there's well, we weren't dealing with charts, and we weren't dealing with healthcare providers. We were providing information on pharmaceutical manufacturing, patent sales to pharmaceutical companies. So you're particularly right when your business impacts consumers and patients and providers who are serving them. And that is an area where much greater sensitivity is needed and there are far greater implications in terms of HIPAA or prior to HIPAA people's confidentiality and risk of, you know, treatment not being documented. So um, very important point, particularly in that area. But certainly, yes, you, I have described the central dilemma 
and characteristics of an entrepreneur as being around how much to listen and how much to not listen and forge your own way. And that encompasses what you're talking about. Yes, you have to not only be collaborative, but you have to be able to inspire other people whom you're leading or working with. You have to inspire other people to take on your new thing, your new system, to adopt your generic drugs for pets when their vet practice is used to paying more and you know buying from the brand side and sucking up all of their information that they provide. So you have to convince people and therefore you have to be able to listen and understand their point of view. And at the same time, you have to be able to see the new way and chart that course for others to the new way. And so it's a very important combination of skills. You know, get it wrong and you can be a bully. I won't mention any now. <laughs> or you can be totally dragged down by the existing paradigm. So you have to have a, I think, a unique fusion of those two characteristics. Malcolm Gladwell talks a lot about the characteristics of entrepreneurs and people who drive change, and he's very perceptive on this subject. What are you working on now? What is your latest business endeavor? So I am uh, investing and looking for uh, investments in early stage companies. I'm also serving on some boards of directors and uh, in discussions about uh, other boards of directors. And I'm looking to help a number of companies at various stages from startup to larger companies in a board role. I'm looking to help a number of companies accelerate growth, which is what I really love. What are the characteristics of these companies that you are um, seeking out now? What, what, what grabs you? What causes you to pay attention? Always what's most important is the management team, the team of people. And the, that's really the number one, two, and three thing, is the team of people. Um, so one company I've invested in and joined the board of here in Portland is MedRhythms, uh, which was founded by uh, two guys from Maine and is building a uh, music therapy device and system for people with gait issues issues in walking. And these guys are fabulous. And the company is uh, focused on a very, very large need, a very large opportunity. They have unique uh, technology and IP, recently filed a patent. Uh, but it's really the, the capabilities and the talent of those two founders that interests me. So narrowing that down then, what do you look for on a well-functioning team? Or what do you look for on, in a leader, in an entrepreneur? Um, a lot of it is that combination that we just talked about, where they both 
listen and don't listen, where they are inspired and unafraid. So a lack of fear is very important with the ability to manage risks and the vision to do something disruptive and big and build at the same time a very strong ability to listen in order to understand customer needs understand the issues understand the FDA requirements uh, in certainly in pharma and many other you know healthcare situations very important to understand and comply with the FDA and at the same time have the vision to build something big and great. So just as you're describing an individual who has a certain combination, it must be also true that this team have a very um, specific set of characteristics. Yes, it's true because one of the faults of entrepreneurs or of company leaders, even of much larger companies, is excessive reliance on or power to one person. So uh, I always look for people who balance each other out and can criticize each other. You know, you ask the question about being conflict averse. And so that ability to have conflict that is productive is actually really important. And to do that, you have to have people who respect each other and listen to each other and are unafraid and actually welcome challenging each other. And, and that's a really important criteria and an important ingredient in success. I'm not sure that we are actually helping people to learn how to deal with conflict in, I would say, in our current system. I know that's a big statement, but I, I think a lot of what I see in organizations is people who don't like conflict, instead of verbalizing it and trying to, to kind of muck, muckle through it, they will pull back they'll be passive-aggressive, they'll leave. And I think part of this is that people don't have a comfort with the idea that it's okay. It is okay to actually feel differently than someone else, have a different idea than someone else. I think that's um, extremely well said, and it's an extremely important point. Even the word conflict, it has kind of a negative connotation. I love conflict. But most people don't. And, you know, I, I grew up with lots of good arguments around the dinner table. And you are absolutely right that we don't necessarily teach people or welcome disagreement, positive, constructive disagreement. And often, I think now, the pendulum is sort of swinging uh, excessively in the direction of teamwork. You know, you can waste a lot of time getting bogged down in trying to do things as a group. 
instead of doing things in the most productive way possible and having the people who are best at doing things do them. And you can waste a lot of time not surfacing disagreements and get caught by things that someone down the line might have seen early on. But, uh, you know, to your point, didn't bring up or didn't feel comfortable bringing up or didn't feel would be welcomed. So I think it's an excellent point. So how do we get to the other side of that? How do we help people be able to work within this environment? Because as you've proven, it's an environment that can actually be very successful. And if it's successful for the company, it's likely to be successful for the individual and for the economy locally. So it's important to learn. I think so. It's it's one of so many things right now that I don't have a good answer for. <laughs> but I do think you need to pick leaders who have those characteristics. I think welcoming conflict and disagreement and asking questions to get to the bottom of things are, are very important. Certainly a lot of... Um, success in life and behaviors go back to schools and so if we have teachers who can great teachers if if I had to cite one thing that's most important in uh, success in America in you know building a successful workforce I, I would say great teachers great elementary school teachers you and I both have children and one of the things I think about often is how I want my children to exist in the world. What, whatever it is that I've given them foundationally, how I want them to, and they can do whatever they want, but there are certain things that I hope they've learned from me. What are things that you hope that your children have learned from you? One of them would be that ability to both listen and hew to their own course. I would hope that both of my kids are good listeners and very perceptive about what's going on in the world around them, even and in particular in unfamiliar situations. We've traveled a lot, so they've spent a lot of time visiting different countries and that's interesting on so many different levels, but I hope has honed their ability to listen and perceive in different cultural environments and learn from that. So that ability to both listen and chart their own course, I have always hoped most fundamentally for my kids that they were each their own people, that they were smart, uh, that they were kind, that they were tough, that they were good listeners and highly competent, but that most fundamentally that each of them figured out who they were as, as people and what they want to do and how they want to be and pursue that, not trying to be someone else or be influenced by someone else. I agree. I hope that my children have exactly that. I think you and I are very um, kindred spirits on that point. So from, from your lips to 
if there's a God, God's ears. How's that? I've been speaking with Jean Hoffman, who is an executive and entrepreneur who has built successful companies in the global pharmaceutical, veterinary, and healthcare information technology industries, who in 2006 founded Putney, a Portland-based pet medicine company that was sold last year for $200 million. You can read more about Jean in our 50 Mainers issue of Maine Magazine. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. Love, Maine Radio is also brought to you by Aristel, a lingerie boutique on Exchange Street in Portland's Old Port, where every body is seen as a work of art and beauty is celebrated from the inside out. Shop with us in person or online at aristel.com. My next guest is Javier Botana, who has been the superintendent of Portland Public Schools since 2016. Before moving to Maine, Botana had been the associate superintendent of Michigan City Area Schools in Indiana since 2010. Thanks for coming in today. It's my pleasure. You've actually um, you've moved around quite a lot in your lifetime. I have. Starting with your family being from Cuba. Yeah, so um, I was born in Cuba shortly after the uh, Cuban Revolution, and um, like so many uh, Cubans at the time, uh, my family um, was in a situation where they really wanted to get out, so um, we left um, sort of in waves. Um, My grandparents left first, and they went uh, to Spain, and then um, at you know, a couple years later, my uh, parents um, shipped uh, me and my um, younger brother off to um, Spain to be reunited um, with my grandparents. And then when they were able to um, get permission to move to the U.S., they did. And then um, the whole family came over and we were um, reunited here. So we're, um, you know, like Cuban refugees, like so many other um, uh, families that left at that time. How old were you when you lived in Spain without your parents? Um, I was two years old when um, when I left Cuba. Um, my younger brother was like just barely a year old. So. And do you have any memory of only being just there? growing up and you know um, uh, dinner uh, Sunday dinner conversations with. My grandparents and their uh, friends and all of the, you know, the refugee community when they get together. So I have all of these mental images of um, Cuba and um, obviously none, no real recollections because I was two years old. And do you have recollection of living, I mean, I guess two, you know, you probably wouldn't, but any recollection, recollections of being without your parents? Um, no, not um, not uh, that you know nothing uh, specific. I don't have a recollection. I mean, um, we always lived with my grandparents in a large extended family. So in many ways, my uh, grandma was always the first point of you know um, first point of um, contact. Um, my mom worked um, right away when we moved to the states, and so you know when we came home from school when you know before we went to school when we were you know um, just staying at home it was with um, my grandma we had a uh, an elderly aunt that also lived with us Um, there were you know like um, eight of us in a um, Volkswagen Beetle so um, it was uh, a lot of fun getting around that's quite an image yeah yeah and it was one of the old Volkswagen Beetles they're much smaller than the than the current ones where did you eventually end up? Where did your family end up? Chicago in? area. In Chicago. Yeah, in the Chicago area, in the south suburbs of um, Chicago, Chicago Heights, Park Forest, um, that area. 
and there was there were other people who were, had also been refugees from yeah. Cuba there yeah. as well. Yeah, um, it's an interesting um, sort of uh, story about um, refugees. My um, parents got out and they came like so many other people to Miami, and um, my father was in Miami for a week and he decided that he needed to get out of Miami because there were too many Cubans and then um, so we never had like big links to Miami and then when he retired after working you know for 30 some years um, he retired to Miami so at that point having lots of Cubans was a good thing. That does seem to be the way that it works sometimes. It it's yeah. sort of the things that you don't think you want and then yeah. you end up yeah. having them in the end. Yeah. How has this been helpful to you coming into the Portland schools, this understanding yourself of um, kind of carrying within you different cultures yeah. and a kind of a complex family background? Yeah, I, I think it, it was um, instrumental in um, my um, seeking the job in the first place. Um, I wanted to work in a place where um, there was a diverse um, community and there was a uh, commitment to uh, that community and to um, you know sort of understanding the value of having uh, different people um, living together and um, so I think that that was um, important for me and I think it also was helpful for the um, selection process that you know I think that my story resonates with you know a lot of um, people in this community. Um, my experiences are not um, completely unlike that of many of our um, students and their parents. Um, you know I think one of the things that um, you know sort of makes this um, really a great place for me is sort of understanding that that is the experience that our kids um, go through and knowing that um, uh, education is the um, most um, vital institution in helping to sort of you know put all of that behind and you know that's the reason that you know so many families come here because they want um, to have uh, an education for their children that's not accessible where where they come from. What was it like um, being in Michigan City in, in Indiana? How did the school systems compare? So um, size-wise, it's a very similar um, school district. We have, you know, um, roughly 7,000 students. Uh, Michigan City has um, roughly 6,000 students. The population is um, is different. Um, where we're incredibly diverse, we have, you know, um, a third of our kids come from a home where uh, English is not the first language spoken, um, and. Um, we have kids from 60 different language groups, um, so it's a very um, multifaceted um, student population. Michigan City is more of a traditional um, blue collar. It's a former mill community, um, smaller in size uh, than Portland, but you know, obviously uh, with um, more uh, with a larger percentage of children um, in the schools. Um, it's about 80% uh, free and reduced lunch, where Portland is about 50% free and reduced lunch. And the population is about half um, white, and the other half is uh, minority, but uh, the overwhelming majority, 90% of the uh, minority, is um, African-American students. Um, so it's a different um, kind of uh, dynamics, but some of them are very, I mean, some of the things that uh, 
that uh, the challenges that we face are the challenges that we faced in um, Michigan City. Um, so I think that there's lots of parallels um, uh, at the same time as that there's obviously some differences. You've been in this new position for the past year. Almost. Which it's been, I would imagine it's always an adjustment to move from one school system to the next. Yeah. What are some of the things that have surprised you? Um, so I think um, the things that's, that have surprised me is how alike things are. Um, you know, I've, um, most of my um, uh, career has been in um, urban uh, settings and, um, you know, until Michigan City, always in uh, larger uh, school districts. So I worked in the Chicago Public Schools, um, I worked in Portland, Oregon, and those are obviously um, significantly larger systems. Um, having worked for the past six years in um, Michigan City, and you know, as I talked about some of those differences, I think one of the surprises is that you know, some of the, um, the um, issues that um, we face in schools are, you know, are very um, similar. So I think that, you know, there's not that many days that I um, face something that I go like, wow, I've never dealt with that before. So I think that that's, that was a surprise. I thought I was going to have more situations where I'm like, I've never dealt with that before. I've never dealt with it in this context. I, you know, the players are different. The, um, the, um, uh, sometimes the laws are different, but but the the issues are um, significantly alike. I think the other thing that has been a um, tremendous um, uh, pleasant surprise is the level of engagement um, by the community at large in um, in the public schools. This is a community where I've seen uh, consistently that people believe in public schools and want to um, help. There are so many people that I meet on a daily basis that are just looking for how can we help and um, are already actively engaged in the schools and want to figure out how they can, you know, um, maximize their, um, you know, the return on their investment in the school. So I think that that's been um, a really pleasant surprise. Um, that um, I, I had a sense of that from, you know, knowing about um, Portland and Maine, um, but I've just been, every day I'm overwhelmed by that. Um, so I think that that's been a surprise. And I think the other surprise is um, the resource base for uh, the schools. Um, you know, I feel um, that there's never enough resources to do everything that we want to do, but I feel that um, this is a community and a state that invests um, uh, in the schools in a way that it feels like the work is doable. Um, we've been through a very difficult budget process um, over the past uh, couple of months as we um, face some of our immediate realities, but the sort of the underlying base of support for our schools is very strong um, at the resource level, which is, you know, again, that's a very important part of it. It seems like no matter where you go, budget becomes a very important part of the conversation because you're not only having um, you're not only having to do what's fair for people who in the community who have children but also what's fair for people in the community who don't have children right. how do you balance those needs um i mean it's it's difficult it's engaging with people we are um you know this 
evening we have a focus group with um, parents as part of our um, sort of um, developing a communications plan around um, what matters to this community about its public schools. Um, so engaging with people at that level and sort of hearing what um, what they like, what they'd like to see, what they don't like about the system. I think all of those um, uh, pieces are, you know, that the only way you get to that is by engaging um, with people. I had the opportunity to sit with um, a group of um, gentlemen who um, get together every Tuesday to talk about um, important issues in, uh, in the community. Um, most of them are retired, successful, huge investment in the schools, but also obviously very concerned about, you know, making sure that that investment is being used wisely. So um, I think that that's the only way to do that. Obviously engaging with the political, um, with the political entities that make those decisions, the school board first, the city council, um, and ultimately with voters is, you know, an important part of the, um, uh, of the mix, that's a that's a surprise that um, I didn't mention earlier. The whole sort of the having to actually go to the um, voters for a decision on uh, the budget at the end of the long process is something that's fairly unique to um, to Maine. How has it worked in other places that you've Generally, been? Generally, the school board makes the decision, and um, you know, obviously, there's hearings and things along those lines, but not a referendum on the budget. That's a the referendum on the budget is, and I've worked in you know four states, and I've never, never seen that before. I'm interested in also your connection to Maine that preceded um, your coming here to be employed by the city of Portland. Yeah. Do you have a connection to Camp No yeah. Limits yeah. Um, through your son, David, who yeah. is now 14? Yep. Yeah. He's a freshman at Casco Bay. and um, But before that, since he was uh, two years old, three years old, I think was the first time that we found out about um, uh, Camp No Limits and um, started coming here. So it's uh, uh, Camp No Limits is a, is a nonprofit. It's a Maine-based nonprofit started by an amazing young lady um, who lives up in the Lewiston area, um, who is a, um, a therapist and started working with um, uh, children who had um, multiple limb uh, anomalies and um, was just inspired and overwhelmed by what those kids were able to accomplish. And so she started this camp. Her first year, there were like three kids at um, at the camp and now they have like 15 camps all over the country and the the principal camp is the summer camp here at, in the Belgrade Lakes and so over 300 campers from all over the country come out for that and so that's what we started when we started coming there were maybe a hundred kids that you know just under a hundred kids that were at the um, at the camp and so um, ever since we've been coming and that's been a big part of uh, David developing his sense of um, self and um, his uh, you know desire to overcome any challenges that are thrown his way so it's been a tremendous um, part of his um, development and of our um, sort of coming together as a family so um, so we always loved coming up for that and we would you know, come through Portland on our way up and um, I think this is a really cool city and then you know when um, uh, 
funny story. The way that I found out about the job is that I, because I worked in Portland, Oregon, I have a Google, um, I have a Google alert for news on education um, coming out of Portland, and occasionally something from Portland, Maine, is in there. And so I saw that the superintendent had left, and so I just half jokingly asked my wife, would we be interested in moving to Maine? And she said, absolutely. And we talked to David and he said, absolutely. And so that's kind of how that uh, started. So, How does he like Casco Bay High School? He loves it. Yeah, he loves it. Did you ever think as you were driving through on your way up to the Belgrade Lakes, oh, someday I may work here. Did you ever have a sense? I never really thought about it as working, but I do remember thinking, like, I'd love to spend more time there because we would just come through and stop, you know, um, restaurant, you know, that kind of thing, pick up somebody at the airport to bring them up to to camp, things like that. So um, I remember thinking it's a great-looking city, you know, and um, knowing people that lived in the area, everybody was really um, always very positive about the experience, and, you know, but we lived in the Midwest and didn't really think of, you know, it was a great place to come to, um, but had never really stopped to think, like, yeah, I'd like to really work there, so um, it wasn't until the the infamous um, Google alert. So somebody somewhere up in the ether somehow yes, sent absolutely. you this message, yeah. and, and you ended up here. So yeah. I guess we're we're fortunate that yeah, way. I, well, I feel very fortunate that you know it totally does feel like it was um, meant to be. Tell me why you decided that education would be your life's path. It's certainly not a path that's easy. Yeah, that's a it's a um, it's a good question. My um, both my parents um, were educators, not originally, but when they came to the U.S., they both became, my mother became a high school Spanish teacher um, after doing other odd jobs as she, you know, built up her uh, language and her credentialing. Um, My father became a a Spanish professor at a university, so um, that was, you know, always part of the uh, part of the equation um, at home. Um, I um, was not a great student in um, high school and, you know, middle school and high school. I was, you know, somewhat disengaged and, you know, more rebellious than, you know, than sort of a, a, a great student. So in some ways I'm not, um, you know, sort of the uh, straight path that you think uh, about education. But I always understood the importance of education, um, the sort of the first um, adult-like conversation that I remember was um, with my uh, grandmother when I was um, maybe six or seven years old and um, talking about how difficult um, things had been for uh, for them, the older generation, um, coming to the um, to the U.S. because they did not um, have an education. And so my grandfather, who had been a, a business owner and had, you know, um, been very successful as um, you know working his way up in uh, Cuba lost everything and wound up working as a, a custodian at a hospital in um, in um, the south suburbs of Chicago and um, that was very difficult he was um, I would say sort of in retrospect embittered by that um, by that experience um, and at the same time my parents because they both had uh, an education when they came had a much easier 
easier path to finding um, finding their way into the middle class. And so I, I that was the first um, time that I understood you know the importance and value of um, education. So that's kind of how it um, how it happened. I had. Um, Teachers that I really loved in high school, not many of them, but you know, there were uh, really inspirational people that you know um, helped you to think and helped you to see the world in ways that you um, that you um, you know didn't think of before. And so I sort of I always liked that part of it, and I love young people and being around young people, and I think that's what you know attracted me to to education. How do you go from being young and rebellious to getting the education you need to become an educator, and not only an educator, but someone who works in administration? Where does where yeah. does that happen? Yeah, that's that. It you know, it, the world takes lots of um, funny twists and turns. Um, I can't tell you that, that I didn't go into education to become a superintendent. In fact, for the longest time, I thought that would be the um, last place that I wanted to um, to wind up um, uh, but I you know I just think over time um, you know I again I think sort of that reflection on what I um, the teachers that I was attracted to were people that looked at um, the world and systems and saw what could be instead of what was and I think that that's probably the um, the best explanation that I can come up with. I would, um, uh, you know, I'm somebody who, as a young teacher, questioned. I was rebellious and, you know, questioned why are we doing it this way and why are we doing it this way and we should really think about a different approach to things and I think that that's what led me into um, administration. Also, I happen to be, I mean, these are the sort of the circumstantial things. I happen to be um, a teacher in a uh, community that was going through rapid demographic change. It was a uh, community that had been extremely, um, you know, uh, working class white community for a long time. And um, when I started, I was an ESL teacher. I was one of three. And within three years, I was one of 40. So it was this massive, you know, influx of um, people moving out of the west side of Chicago into um, into this um, community. And so, um, you know, they were looking around for people that could do leadership, um, uh, take on leadership roles, and um, because I had a big mouth, I think they asked me to um, start doing some leadership work, and that's where I um, I was coaching teachers, and um, you know, it just felt like this is you can make a difference, and you know, even if you're not working directly with kids, you can make a, a difference in kids' lives. So that was your that was your chosen field was was being an ESL teacher. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So that's kind of interesting. So you've always been involved in kind of translating ideas amongst various groups, whether it's a linguistic idea or right. whether it's a social idea, a cultural idea. Yeah. I think I love the fact that I actually think more rebels should go into things that are considered traditional because I think that there, it seems as though we have people, students who would benefit from being rebels, questioning rebels, and having teachers who foster that and don't expect them to fit into the same. Yeah. Um, I think that's one of the things that, that also was very attractive to me about um, Portland is I um, think that there's a genuine um, 
desire to listen to um, to young people and what they have to say, um, and not to sort of rule it out, um, you know, just because they're young and um, inexperienced. So what we call student voice is, you know, very much a part of the. Um, Portland uh, ethos and Portland Public Schools ethos, and I think that that's um, that's something that you know that I believe in, and I think um, one of the reasons that I think that this is a um, a great place to live, and it's a great place for kids to go to school. What would you like to see happen in the Portland Public Schools now that you know coming up in a year, um, taking on this big job, and it. It has been a school system in some transition itself. What would you like to see happen yeah. going forward? So um, I think one of the, um, you know, we've worked um, hard this first um, uh, sort of first six months to develop, you know, a plan for our future. And so we articulated um, a set of goals that um, were approved by the board in December and those I hope will be the foundation of our work um, for the long haul. Um, I think um, sort of that stability is um, very important to the district. I think it was very clear uh, coming into the position that you know the district has um, suffered because of the transition um, at the top. So um, obviously nobody can you know can predict the future, but um, I you know as long as I um, as long as people want me here, I want to be here. This is a, a great place to work. So I think that looking at that plan is something um, for the long haul, not something that we're going to do in two years and then we're going to go do something else, I think is really important. Um, I think at the core of that plan is a commitment to equity. Um, we uh, do remarkably well with our um, middle class um, uh, students. So when you compare our outcomes on, you know, traditional measures of achievement, SAT scores, things along those lines, um, kids that come to us from, you know, um, strong um, economic backgrounds, we do as well as the neighboring communities. So we compare to Yarmouth and um, Cape Elizabeth, places where people traditionally think of those, you know, you move to those places because of the grade schools. Um, so I think that that's something that um, a challenge for me is being able to get that message out in a way that it sort of resonates and it doesn't feel like, you know, we're just um, you know, sort of reaching for straws. I think that's a challenge. Um, but I think that the more... Um, important part, the piece that drives me um, the most is that, you know, that's not a shared experience for the children coming from um, low uh, income uh, backgrounds. And so, you know, that's obviously a challenge that everyone everywhere is um, facing. So I don't have a magic bullet that I can, you know, but I think that that's a worthwhile um, pursuit for um, for me. I think it's a worthwhile pursuit for this community because I do believe that with the level of um, engagement, the level of resources, the level of commitment to, um, you know, sort of to, to helping each other to, um, to grow and um, develop, I think that that's something that's achievable here. And I think that we can be a model for what it takes to do that work, you know, um, in an urban school setting. What do you do for fun? 
So I run. I have two um, German Shepherds that um, uh, love to go for long walks, so um, uh, I do that. And um, my sort of my guilty pleasure is that I am a um, soccer fanatic, so I, I love European um, soccer, and um, I've like been known to sort of just you know. Um, watch three games in a row on a Sunday, you know, afternoon. Um, so that kind of stuff. So like Manchester United, Real Madrid. Liverpool and Barcelona. Excellent. Yes. Now, now that we've outed you, people yes. are going to come find you That's and have right. conversations with you about yes. the benefits of this. Yeah. Well, I appreciate your coming in and having this conversation with me today. Any final thoughts as you, um, as you look forward into your own life? Well, I... I I think that um, I have been so um, fortunate to uh, wind up here in um, in Portland and in Maine. Um, as a family, we feel like this is home. Um, you know, having lived in um, the other Portland and um, you know, sort of feeling like we didn't fit into the West Coast, um, we totally feel like this is um, that that this is home. So um, we're really looking forward to getting to see more of Maine. And um, you know, there's people will say names of places, and we're like, where is that? Where is that? And so um, looking forward to doing that, um, and um, you know, just looking forward to making a difference in this great city. I've been speaking with Javier Botana, who is the superintendent of the Portland Public Schools. Thank you for coming in today. I know you have a busy schedule, and thank you for the work that you're doing. Absolutely. Thank you. This has been a, this has been a lot of fun. You've been listening to Love, Maine Radio, show number 304, Entrepreneurship and Education. Our guests have included Gene Hoffman and Javier Botana. For more information on our guests and extended interviews, visit lovemainradio.com. Love Main Radio is downloadable for free on iTunes. For a preview of each week's show, sign up for our e-newsletter and like our Love Main Radio Facebook page. Follow me on Twitter as Dr. Lisa and see our Love Main Radio photos on Instagram. We'd love to hear from you, so please let us know what you think of Love Main Radio. We welcome your suggestions for future shows. Also, let our sponsors know that you have heard about them here. We are privileged that they enable us to bring Love Main Radio to you each week. This is Dr. Lisa Belaya. I hope that you have enjoyed our entrepreneurship and education show. Thank you for allowing me to be a part of your day. May you have a bountiful life. Love, Maine Radio is brought to you by Maine Magazine, Aristel, Portland Art Gallery, and Art Collector Maine. Audio production and original music by Spencer Albee. Our editorial producer is Paul Koenig. Our assistant producer is Shelby Wasson. Our community development manager is Casey Lovejoy. And our executive producers are Kevin Thomas, Rebecca Falzano, and Dr. Lisa Delisle. For more information on our production team, Maine Magazine, or any of the guests featured here today, please visit us at lovemainradio.com. Here's a track from Spencer Albee's new album, Relentlessly Yours, in stores and online now at spenceralbee.com. My